gentlemen, welcome to the Good Roads Podcast. I am Jared LeMay here with Thomas Barakat, and boy, are the next few weeks leading up to the 2023 Good Roads Conference going to be exciting. We'll be dropping two episodes of the podcast in the next couple of weeks, featuring speakers from the conference. Uh, the conference app has uh, released for those attending the conference, and study tours are filling up fast. Did I miss anything, Thomas? I think you got it all, Jared, as usual. As usual. Awesome. Okay, today we are excited to have Brent Totterin, a renowned urbanist and city planner, as our special guest. Brent has over 30 years of experience working on urban design and transportation projects in cities around the world, including Vancouver and Calgary. He is also the founder of the urbanism consultancy Totterin Urban Works and a sought-after speaker and commentator on urban issues. Today, we'll be discussing some of the most pressing issues facing facing the transportation industry and how cities can plan and design their roads and transportation systems to better serve their communities. Welcome to the Good Roads Podcast, Brent. It's fantastic to have you here and to get everybody prepared for your session at the conference. Thank you. It's great to see you both. Excellent. Um, let's uh, let's start things off a little bit light. Uh, can you tell uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, you did a pretty good job there. Uh, I'm a city planner. Um, I, I often get described as a transportation specialist, which I'm not. Um, I, but uh, my perspective is you can't be an expert on cities without being an expert on urban transportation. So transportation is one of many elements of city building that I do deep dives on in my work and in, and in the conversations I have with communities and civic leaders and, and, and such. So I'm an unapologetic and, and aggressive generalist about cities. I love every aspect of, of what makes cities work better or worse. And, um, and that plays out in my career, my practice. Um, I started my first, uh, I've been at this for 31 years professionally. Um, the first 10 years was, was predominantly in Canada. Um, about uh, two thirds of that time has been in the private sector. And most recently I advise cities. I don't even call myself a consultant. I call myself an advisor. I advise cities all over the planet uh, on any issue that relates to the to more successful and better, more sustainable, more healthy, more uh, uh, resilient city building. Uh, so yes, that covers transportation, but it covers every other element uh, you could think of in terms of positioning cities for greater success. And um, uh, I was chief planner of Vancouver for six years. And so uh, I often get asked to talk about Vancouver planning, but I, uh, and, and, and because it is such a high profile city in the context of not only city planning, but urban transportation. But I often point out that that was just six of my 31 years. So let's not just talk about <laughs> Vancouver. Thank you very much. Although I do live here and I have lived here for <laughs> seven, I, did, I, I have lived here for 17 years since I first moved here to become chief planner in 2006. Okay. And uh, you actually got your start in Ontario, I think, if I remember correctly. Correct. I was Born and raised um, uh, in Ontario, uh, t town of Perth, Ontario is my hometown. Went to Hamilton for high school, went to the University of Waterloo for my city planning education. The first 10 years of my career was probably 60%, 70% Ontario based and the rest Canadian based. Uh, in Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, Toronto, uh, uh, Guelph. I lived in all of those cities. So for the, for the Ontario crowd there, uh, I often go back and do uh, work um, in Ontario, lately more virtually than physically, but it's always nice to go back uh, because that was the first nine or 10 years of my professional career. 
Oh, good. Yeah, it's good. I'm sure our uh, our audience and our delegates will be very happy to to know that you understand the Ontario context uh, quite well. Uh, this is where you kind of got your start. So mm-hmm. glad to hear that. So why don't we, uh, you know, move past the introductory portion here and kind of just get into it. We're, you know, we talked the other day, Brent, and, uh, you know, you remarked that we were called Good Roads. And uh, I think that the, we, we kind of talked about uh, talking about um, what's the difference between a road and a street. And you felt that there's you know, a lot, a lot to mention here. So why don't I uh, just kind of ask you that? What is the difference between a road and a street, Brian? Why don't you tell everyone listening that? Well, yeah, before you get into that, I think that'll be really interesting because uh, about a year ago, last year's conference, we had Charles Marone on to discuss um, his thoughts. I'd be, I'd be interesting to, interested to compare and contrast uh, how both of you uh, approach this. Well, I suspect there might be some similarities. You know, to make it even goofier, I think I, I, asked you some questions about both of the words in your title. What do you mean by roads and what do you mean by good? Because, you know, they're, both of them are pretty subject to interpretation. Um, I have often differentiated roads and streets. Um, I've never known where, whether I've done it properly. It's kind of like, you know, when you ask someone what the word literally means these days. Uh, but <laughs> Uh, my interpretation of streets versus uh, roads has always been that streets are more urban, roads are more rural. Streets, uh, roads are more moving vehicles. Streets are more multimodal and multi-purpose. Roads are horizontal. Uh, uh, streets are three-dimensional because it includes the buildings that actually frame and create the urban space for the street. Uh, and as I say, streets do a lot more than just move people. Uh, they certainly move, do a lot more than move cars, but more importantly, they do a lot more than even move people because they're not just about movement. They can be. And when you're designing and, and, and conceptualizing the operation of a street and all the things it does, all the definitions of success for a good or a great street, uh, there's a lot more than just how many vehicles you move in an hour. Right. Uh, or even just how many people you move in an hour, because it, it ain't all about movement. One of the things I often say is that the sophisticated cities out there in recent decades have had the epiphany that streets aren't just about moving vehicles. They're about moving people. And as soon as you think about moving people as a success, you realize that there's a lot better ways than moving to move people than in their cars. And thus the whole conversation about multimodal, active transport, et cetera. But that's first generation epiphany. Second generation epiphany is streets are not only just about moving vehicles, uh, they're not even about moving. And so necessarily, so you can have these tensions around, for example, uh, do you create space for people to move or spaces for outdoor seating during the pandemic, for example? Those are both completely legitimate um, intentions and definitions of success for an urban street. Uh, and, you know, often the, 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 the idea that you're trying to move people as efficiently as possible flies in the face of how streets actually work successfully, because I use a term called sticky streets to describe the idea that great streets, good streets actually slow people down, make them want to linger, make them want to window shop or say hi to their neighbor or, or check out the menu on that restaurant with the great outdoor patio. And, and that's, that makes a street sticky, sticky instead of, you know, the opposite of sticky might be Teflons, Teflon streets <laughs> where God help you. You just want to get through that street as quickly as possible for various reasons. So yeah, I think there is a difference between the two words, 
When I look them up in the actual dictionary, there does seem to be a differentiation relative to more urban and more rural. But I think it's more than that. As I say, streets are places and roads are usually something with a single purpose to, to move traffic, to move vehicle traffic in particular. I'm not sure if everybody sees it that way. Uh, and uh, certainly it, it can, there's a lot of people out there that use the two words interchangeably, but I don't. That's a pretty interesting um, differentiation. And it, I guess one we'd all agree with actually. Um, <laughs> and a lot of what you, what you talked about there, actually um, I, I looked at, like I told you earlier, the how cities make us sick from the national. Um, and a lot of your portion of that was in uh, Medellin, Colombia. Um okay. And the streets there, a lot of what you talked about were different ways of uh, not not necessarily moving people, but creating a community and allowing people to move around without being vehicle based. Right. So well, I guess like for, for for forever, for centuries, for longer, uh, streets were the, the 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 number one almost single public realm of a city, public space of a city. They did everything. And movement was actually secondary to commerce, would have been the primary definition of success for a street. And at a certain point, we became so obsessed with movement and particularly car movement in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, that we, we took these incredibly complex, diverse, fascinating public places and made them almost single purpose, almost. And, so, and there are some roads that are single purpose. If, if somebody's walking there, you think, what are they doing there? <laughs> uh, are they lost? Are they, they may be in danger. You know, that's how badly yeah. we've designed that single purpose place that, that it doesn't make sense for anybody else to be doing anything else there. Well, it's uh, kind of and- funny too, because you, you look at Canada and um, we're, we're such a stretched out uh, country, you, like cities are far, far away and they build highways to join these cities, but it just seems like those highways have leaked into the cities and it's become less of a community and more. And I mean, you see these in, in movies in in the States, like I'm a parent, so I know the movie cars very well. And in that first movie, it was all about route 66 and um, being bypassed by the highway and not going through these communities anymore. So everybody was all about just going fast and uh, the, what was streets now became roads. Right. And, and in, that, in that movie, because I know it well, because my kids have watched it a hundred thousand times, <laughs> um, they, they never used the word street, I don't think, now that you mention it. Uh, it was always, you know, fix the road in, in that. Right, and, right. And, but, but it is, that is a more urban street, although urban might be an overstatement for, for the, 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 the town they had there. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it had urban conditions. It played more, it did more things than move people, whereas the bypass, the evil bypass was single right. purpose. It was it was Teflon, and 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 the the road that they were trying to fix um, that that they had Lightning McQueen trying to fix was trying to be a sticky road because they yeah. wanted you to go in and buy tires. Boy, that's the most or or you know bumper stickers. <laughs> that's the most I've ever talked about that animated movie on a on an urbanism podcast before. <laughs> but it actually, it it does illustrate the point of a sort of a Teflon. Um, a, Play, space versus a, a sticky space, uh, a sticky place yeah. that that wants to slow you down and pop in and not just try to find the uh, the interchange again. So it's it's I think it's an important distinction because where the problems have happened in our city 
is when we've tried to put roads in urban places or and perhaps streets in right. rural places, but that's less of a problem because we haven't really tried to do that very much. <laughs> uh, you know, the problem is when you take the bypass road and run it through the downtown and you make essentially a highway running through the downtown, a bypass road, because some traffic engineer had only one definition of success, to move people probably to the interchange as quickly as possible. And, right. and not people, vehicles, and not even just cars, trucks, you know, and it was about it was about commerce in the sense of interstate commerce, not not you know local commerce buying some milk or bread. So it's it it, it took a fundamentally rural, not even rural. It's not even fair to call it rural. It took an anti-urban thing, like a highway, and put it right through your urban condition, and right. and that did so much. I don't need to tell you that did so much damage. Uh, that's not what was in the the Lightning McQueen movie because the, they did a bypass instead. But in many cases, they cities actually or towns actually took the highway right through the town, and it became yeah. the new Main Street. But it wasn't a Main Street anymore; it was a highway. So you know, and I'm sure Chuck has talked about a lot of that because that's a that's a it's not uniquely American, but American cities and places did it more than any other place in Canada. We've had examples of that too, not as bad as America. Our, our, our ministries of transportation are not as bad as the DOTs in the States, but that's a low bar to compare ourselves because <laughs> you know, we're not as bad as the worst place on earth at this. But, um, but you know, we certainly have had our own problems. Uh, and you know, it sparks conversations in Canada and in Ontario about how do we fix that? How do we urbanize roads? How do we make them now more multimodal? That's the whole complete streets movement. Um, how do we, do we tear down the highway? Do we bury the urban highway, which is an oxymoron? Do we tear it down and put, replace it with an underground tunnel like some cities have done, Boston, Seattle, et cetera? Or do we just recognize we can get rid of it because we didn't need to build it in the first place, which cities like Vancouver show you because we never built them, right? Yeah. And then you see it play out in the conversations in Toronto politics right now. You know, do you do you right. spend all those all, all that money rebuilding the Gardner, which was a mistake in the first place, uh, the East Gardner specifically, not the whole Gardner. So uh, you know, it's playing out in conversations about city building, and that's why when when I when I'm having a conversation with an organization that calls itself Good Roads. <laughs> you know, I, I want to have that conversation of, well, what what places are we really talking about? Are we talking about roads and streets? Are we talking about them in different places? Are we really embracing everything a street is or, or primarily the transportation function? And then we can start talking about what we mean by good and good for who? Good for everybody, good for the future relative to sustainability and climate change. And why, by the way, is it only good? And why, why isn't the standard great? <laughs> why isn't your organization called Great Streets instead of Good Roads? You know, I'm, I'm not trying to redesign your whole organization for you. But it, but no, it, we already it, did that last year. <laughs> it raises some really interesting questions about what it does, who yes. your constituency is, what your what your goal, what your definition of success is as an organization, and that's, it's it, it parallels with a conversation that's happening right now with all of the professions anyway, the transportation uh, engineering and transportation planning professions, the city planning professions. For the last couple of decades, we've been going through that conversation, rethinking our own definitions of success, and and having some really tough turning point level conversations 
about how we need to change moving forward. So I'm not just picking on your title. I like, <laughs> I like your title because it's a great conversation starter that's part of this whole turning point we're having in the city building conversation anyway. There's a lot of good points there and a lot to yeah. unpack. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, that's that's mainly why I brought up uh, Medellin as well, um, is because they they had these conversations about, should we have this? And if, well, from what I saw, should we have this? Should we not have it? Can we repurpose it? And one of the things that I picked out of that, um, that episode was the gondolas um, mm-hmm. that they repurposed. And then it, also, um, in terms of moving people, the uh, escalators. Yeah. To, well, and, from, and, you know, that's that's a rethink of what transportation infrastructure right, is. Right, right. Exactly. They, they were rethinking their streets and their roads. Absolutely. Uh, they were making them multimodal. They were putting in bike lanes. They were putting in bus only lanes for BRT, bus rapid transit. They were building light rail uh, at the same time. They were doing all the normal boxes to check for moving more people with less space and less public money and fewer emissions and less pollution. Because Medellin at the time was, uh, when I started working for them as an advisor, they had the lowest car use of any major Latin American city, but it was on the rise because they were getting more wealthy. And as soon as a Latin American city starts to have more money, they want to start replicating the North American definition of success, which is car dependency, which is such a ridiculous concept that somehow that the world would copy us on our downward (laughs) spiral towards dependency. The actual word is dependency on cars. But, um, you know, one of the things that I advise them on is send the message right now that if people have more money, and they want to spend it on more cars, you're not going to build more roads. Do not expect that there will be road capacity expanded for vehicles to accommodate more vehicles, because that is called induced traffic. The more you build, the more you're actually inducing car use and car ownership. And there's, they don't have much that they could tear down other than low-income communities in right. order to make more space for cars. And so my advice to them was get out in front of it, tell the whole marketplace, nobody can tell you not to buy a car with your money now, but there will not be more road space for you. So you'll probably be shining it in your garage and not want to take it out very often because you'll probably take the light rail because that's how you get to work faster. You know, and so that conversation was happening at that key turning point moment for Medellin uh, when I was working for them. And on top of that, of course, they were they were blowing a hole through the conversation about transportation infrastructure by repurposing escalators from the shopping mall and repurposing gondolas from the ski slopes, literally because their leaders went on a ski holiday and came back and said, why couldn't we use these? And one of the things I love about Latin American cities that blew my mind open when I started working for them about 12 or 13 or 14 years ago was, you know, any other city would say, why don't we just use gondolas from ski slopes because of the incredible hills that we have in our city to get into those low-income communities? Ah, that'll never work. Like that's how the conversation goes in North American cities. And in Latin American cities, they go, yeah, that's smart. Let's do it. And two years later, they've, they're doing it. They're well, that actually- was one of the things that you said in that, in that uh, interview was that uh, Latin American cities, they take a good idea, they find the money and they build it fast. Uh, yep. With North American cities, it seems we're just so bogged down in bureaucracy 
Yeah, uh, it's not bureaucracy. It's well, it's, they they sit there a, and debate it's a things forever. Culture. It's, right. It's it's a mentality of new ideas. And, and the funny thing is, there's a lot of new ideas out there that are bad. So I'm not someone who says new ideas, new ideas, new ideas. Right. But but you know wh- what I say is they've got a talent for knowing a good idea when they hear it. Uh, recognizing it's not just a good idea, but a cheap idea because they do not have all the money in the world. I work for some of the poorest cities on the planet and some of the richest cities on the planet. And watching the difference in terms of creativity is striking in, the, in those two kinds of cities. And, and they know that because of various reasons, including the fact that mayors can only run for one term at a time um, uh, and can't do two terms in a row, they're very motivated in getting things done fast very Hmm. motivated. And so it's a completely different mindset of thinking outside of the box, um, uh, doing things more cost effectively and, um, and just doing it faster. It's a culture. And I, I, I don't think it's bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is, is, um, is a word that gets applied to, uh, you know, a symptom, a symptom. It's not the root cause. Uh, that's why I spend so much of my time with the cities that I work with, not just helping them write better plans, creating new processes. We create new culture. We actually work on culture of risk aversion versus out of the box thinking. And, you know, we talk about the difference between successful cities is not more money. Um, it's more, uh, it's less excuse and how you have an actual culture of energy instead of excuse experimentation and learning uh, rather than risk aversion, right? And so I, I work literally work with cities to try to create that culture because then you can get your good ideas done. I always say the good ideas is, are the easy part. It's getting it yeah. done. That's the hard part. And we right. see that play out. You know, you look at what Medellin did with their, uh, their uh, gondolas compared to here in British Columbia, the debate that's gone on for decades, literally decades about a gondola up to Burnaby mountain would it yeah. be, would be a Canadian example of that technology. And we've had decades of just n- not getting it done. Well, and that seems almost, says, it, you know, it sounds like a good idea. Why aren't we doing it? Right. So well, it seems like a uniquely Canadian idea, especially for BC, mm-hmm. like with all the mountains out there and, and, and the difficulty in moving around. Right. And, and in other cities, you know, you can use that technology to get past slope. You can use it to get past just distance. You know, I, I did an interview. Paris has been is, is doing it to get past some of its carscape, no man's, no person's land uh, that is just too far to go. So it's not that they have hills because it's pretty flat, but they've created all this carscape that it's almost impossible to cross. So gondolas become a way to bridge that distance, right? It, it's just, it's, there are cities all over the world uh, that are doing things in, in innovative ways, fast ways, and there are cities that are not. And it's, and it's funny that it's the, it's the former cities that call me. The, the cities that are already doing innovation for some reason end up being the ones who call me because they know what innovation can do and they want to go even further. The cities that are risk averse don't call me because I'll probably just make them feel bad about themselves, about <laughs> not getting things done. Um, and so, you know, the innovative cities get more innovative and the stagnating cities just stay more stagnant. So Brent, what have you seen? So we talked about Medi and we talked about, you know, how that would apply to, you know, British Columbia. You mentioned Paris. What have you seen internationally in terms of good ideas that could be applied to Ontario and the Ontario setting? I know 
Ontario, it's a huge place. I can't, it's very, I can't just say Ontario, you could, you know, focus on whichever part, but what, what, what are some of these ideas that could be applied here? So someone from Ontario listening, some of our members, a mayor, a counselor, a uh, director of public works, uh, you know, all these people, what, what, what could they take from what you've seen um, uh, and, and all these innovative places? And just to tack onto that too, we need to keep in mind that our uh, our delegates, especially at this conference, are going to be from very small towns up to Toronto. So we've right. got a, a wide bridge there. If there are a couple of different solutions, or if there's maybe one blanket one, no, uh, there isn't. But it starts with an attitude shift, which is why we started by what might have seemed like a superficial comment com- uh, conversation about your name, the, the actual. <laughs> The actual starting point of better ideas and better decisions is to rethink your definition of success. When I look at what cities around the world are doing, look, let's look at what they did during the pandemic. We had North American cities that were slow and reluctant in creating space for people by closing off streets to cars uh, during the pandemic for people to get to work safely, to get uh, exercise um, uh, when we were sort of feeling like we uh, couldn't go out, but but we were able to go outside very easily. Um, and then the co- whole conversation about transforming street space uh, for outdoor patios for, for restaurants so that they literally wouldn't go out of business during the pandemic. North America was slow and timid on that. Uh, European city, uh, Latin American cities were fast and creative. Uh, but still thinking sometimes in a temporary way, the, the European cities were by far the best at acting quickly, acting creatively in repositioning street space for people and not just for movement and do it in a way that they are in, right up front intended to be permanent because their line was, we're doing it faster now, but we were planning on doing this anyway because even if there wasn't a pandemic, we would be doing this for air pollution, quality of life, livability, economic development, um, um, and um, and just basic urban success. We're just doing it faster now because we're in a, a, a global emergency relative to a pandemic, but it is permanent, right? So the difference in attitude, whereas North American cities, I literally heard politicians say, okay, are we done now? Can we put the street back, the road back? <laughs> Uh, the way that it was, what a missed opportunity! What what a what a what a small way of looking at your big urban challenges, right? And so, it is literally it, what I've experienced is that both with leaders, but with communities in general, because you can get leadership from the community, you get can get leadership from elected officials or senior staff, uh, or both. You need to have that epiphany, that aha moment where people do start to see success differently. This isn't about, North America is one of the only places on the planet that really sees streets as roads, uh, as places to move vehicles, as opposed uh, to places, uh, probably the most uh, important public space in your city, public places in your city. And so when you have that conversation and it's kind of broken through, now you can have conversation about you know, these good ideas that you're asking me about. And these good ideas are not going to necessarily be just about how do we move more cars more efficiently? Because that's the way our conversation has been going. Good roads equals moving cars more efficiently, right? Instead of 
how do we create a great place that's an urban street that still allows cars? I'm not a, necessarily a fan of banning cars. There's very few places where ban cars should be banned in cities, uh, in my opinion, at least in North America right now. But, but you, you know, how do we reprioritize space? How do we redefine success so that we can have bigger wins in our urban streets and our urban places? To me, that's the conversation, whether you're a small Ontario rural city, but you've got historic main streets and historic downtowns, whether you're a big city like Toronto, that's the conversation that will literally differentiate you from your competition. And this is, this is one of my key points. This is not an ideology about, you know, do I like cars or bikes better? It's, it's, it's a perspective on how cities succeed or don't succeed from every perspective you can think about, including economic success. You know, when I look at city, cities like Toronto and shake my head and think at all the missed opportunities they have to reposition their streets in public life, there's all sorts of reasons I know that's failure, but the uh, one of the obvious reasons is it's just economic failure. It literally makes Toronto less competitive compared to other urban cities that are doing better, smarter, faster, right? And so you're, you're, you're holding back your own success, whether it's economic success, social success, cultural success, civic success. And so, you know, I think the cities that have had that epiphany have realized that they're often they're calling me because they've had the epiphany and they but they don't know what to do. So we, we do that kind of work. But other cities have called me because they've had that epiphany, but their community may not be necessarily there with them yet. And so how do we start a public conversation about a different kind of city? So, Brent, so tell you, it's super hard. If you haven't had that epiphany yet, it's super hard to have a conversation about things like road space or parking. In your city, if people are are only thinking cars, 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 because right. you can you can get a bloodbath pretty quickly in terms of public meetings and such. So, Brent, how do you get people, leaders, especially in cities and, and places all over, uh, rural, urban, whatever? How do you get them to see the light or to change their way of thinking or to see past the status quo in a sense to imagine something different or better? Um, how, how does that happen? Um, in the earlier parts of my career, it happened slowly. And it's because I often <laughs> said or thought, we have to go somewhere to see something different for us to be able to picture something that doesn't exist currently in our city. And the example we've already talked about in Medellin, um, uh, a, a leader going to on a ski trip and coming back with an idea about gondolas in the poor communities of their city. Uh, you had to go somewhere. And so we'd talk about these game changing, you know, the mayor or the city planner would take a trip and ride bikes in Copenhagen and come back with a different perspective. Now the beauty of it is uh, that access to that better way, that, that understanding of the better way is ubiquitous now. We have social media. I tweet videos almost on a daily basis uh, showing better things. And, and you expand your Twitter account, Brent. What's that? I'm a big fan of your Twitter oh, account. Thanks. <laughs> and, and, you know, you're, what you're doing is showing, you're, you're essentially showing the thing that people would have usually had to take a trip to experience. Right. And that's made it accessible. It's made it uh, ubiquitous. 
And now everybody knows it. You know, I'll tweet something like that and I'll retweet it a month later and I'll retweet it a month later and each time it'll get thousands of retweets. And think about how many people are now seeing something and they're responding back saying, we could do that on blank street in our city, right? And that used to take people traveling and now it just doesn't anymore. That's the power of, so. that's why I say social media, Twitter, Etc. is has been a game changer in the urbanism conversation, and the, the the discourse that happens on social media. Why aren't we getting this? Why can't our city have good things too? And then they tweet their mayor and say, "Why aren't you doing this?" That's it. That's almost an instantaneous learning and commentary, political commentary that all happens in real time with almost the snap of a figure finger. Uh, so that's what gives me confidence. And why the conversation is changing so fast. Well, and things like the Good Roads Conference too, this is exactly why we put it on is because we get speakers like you, like Chuck Marone, um, Michael Colville Anderson a few years back talking about biking. All of these different unique ideas from around the world are coming to the conference for these leaders, the mayors, CAOs, uh, right down to public works to, to see, to experience, to see things through your eyes and to ask questions. And this is one of the reasons why we put this conference on is so that people can hear directly from you who've been all over the world, improving places like Medellin and Vancouver and Paris, even Um, you're you're bringing those experiences to them. But what I'll say is uh, at the same time as what I just said, because I just name dropped a bunch of pretty cool, sexy cities. Uh, There can be, you know, there's the inevitable, but we're not Amsterdam. We're not Copenhagen. Doesn't right. this guy from Vancouver oh, yeah. understand that that Timmins uh, uh, downtown Timmins is different? Um, you know, and and so because I've worked in literally every scale uh, of of urban place from the small town in the urban village to, up to the biggest cities, you know, I can call BS on that pretty quick and say what we're talking about is is relevant and applicable to all of these kinds of contexts, but. Let's put aside the Copenhagens. Let's put aside the Parises because they can be hard for people to sort of say, well, I can't see how Paris is relevant to me in Timmins, right? So, so what I like using are the examples that I call the, the cities or the towns that are punching above their weight, the unlikely heroes. You know, in, in the beginning of the pandemic in North America, the city of Oakland, California closed down 10% of its entire road space to cars and opened that road space, that street space to people. And every city in North America was instantly inspired. I remember when it happened and we all used the, one of my favorite phrases, if Oakland can do it, why can't we? Right? <laughs> it's because nobody expected a city like Oakland. When, when Calgary, Canada did the best urban downtown bike, neck, bike lane, protected bike lane network pilot that I'd ever seen anywhere in the world. And then Edmonton very quickly just copied it because of the Battle of Alberta is more than just <laughs> hockey. Um, <laughs> that people said, and I, I prompted it, if Calgary can do this, why can't you? This is, you know, this is Alberta. This is oil country. Come on. If, if Calgary and Edmonton can, can do this. And in Ontario, uh, I've been advising the city of Kingston for almost five years now. We recently put out a piece of work called The Power of Parking that completely changed the local conversation on what parking does. 
and yeah. and and how, how you have the real conversation about parking, which isn't just based on well, there's not enough parking. To um, you know, actually, probably we have too much parking, and we're building too much parking, and it's actually wrecking a lot of the things we say we want to achieve. Let's have that really blunt, really um, uh, uh, unapologetic conversation, and then let's create a whole new set of parking rules, which we just did. It got approved in Ontario. No appeals to the to the to the appeal tribunal, which is a magic trick in Ontario for your <laughs> listeners. Right. Yeah. And and we did all that in Kingston. And Kingston wow. has become a rock star city for mid-sized, historic, conservative kind of cities that you can say, well, Kingston's doing it. Why can't you? So I actually would prefer to reference those cities than the than the Parises and the and the Copenhagens, because I don't need to tell you the backlash you can get from those from mentioning those right. places. But if Kingston, Oakland, and uh, Calgary and Edmonton can do it, you really have no excuse. Well, I think it's like what you said earlier is it's it's a thought shift as well. It's not we're not Paris. It's why can't we be Paris or why can't we be Kingston? Why can't we be? Because everybody has the like, the, I guess the propensity to not be those cities, but to take those ideas and apply Learn them to from those cities. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You will never be Paris, Toronto. No, or but you Paris. don't have to be. You you'll don't have to be Paris. Paris. Right, and you will never be Vancouver, nor do you want to be. Exactly. But, but every city can learn from every other city and be inspired by them. And then apply and I, that inspiration to their local context. That's basically what I do yeah. in all my cities. But I mean, yeah, your example about Kingston, you're, you're not Paris, you're Kingston. And Kingston has a certain charm to it. I used to live in Belleville and we'd go to Kingston all the time. And right. with all the parking around there, I remember Princess Street was such a pain to drive down because the parking was so weird. And it sort of blocked off the roads, but that was uh, probably a decade ago. And I'd be interested to go back and see what they do with parking and everything like that. I've got to go see my uncle sometime this summer. So I'll be looking out for that when I go to Kingston. Well, it's interesting. Um, you So you mentioned Princess which in Kingston, which is going through, I've been, as I say, working with them for a number of years. Uh, it will be very different than the last time you saw it and not because of the horizontal of the street or the road. It, it's a street right. in that context, but because the entire corridor is transforming as an urban multimodal place. And so you can loop right back to the way we started this conversation. Is it a good, is it a good road? No, it's becoming a great street. And that's not just about movement. That's about all the people who are living on princess now. Yeah. Uh, because we're building housing, uh, it dense oh, housing cool. to frame the street and a public realm that makes it a great place to get around no matter how you're getting around. And so now it's a three-dimensional place uh, for people. And it's becoming more and more of that every year, that, rather than a, a horizontal space for cars. And so it's a perfect metaphor, maybe a good way to wrap up this this conversation, because it shows why we're having this conversation about what good or great means, what a road or a street means, and what our evolving, rapidly evolving definition of success needs to be. All right. Well, I guess um, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, I want to we'll give you a couple more minutes before uh, we wrap it up, though. And um, I just want to ask you, what's the message you'll be delivering to the delegates at the 2023 conference? Well, I, I may riff on this street versus road place. I'm pretty tempted. What I like to do is figure out a way to 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 jumpstart the conversation, and then I, especially if it's an under, elephant under the table, and I like pulling that elephant out 
and plopping it on the table and talking about it. So I, th- I have a feeling my message will be that we are at a turning point, that uh, we've been in a turning point for a while. It's not a year-long t- turning point. It's kind of a five-year, even a 10-year-long turning point. But it's picking up speed relative to the climate emergency, the housing affordability emergency, the social equity and racism and classism emergencies that our cities are facing, the infrastructure cost and public health crises that our cities are facing. We badly need new and better solutions. And that's playing out in every element of city building. And it's certainly, for God's sakes, got to be playing out in the way that we think we rethink our roads and our streets. So it's a perfect time for us to have a conversation on a a, a much more ambitious definition of what a good street or a good road is. Um, And that conversation has to be different than it was even a couple of years ago or certainly 10 years ago. And and then I'm going to use all the the elements and the conversation points we're having about streets, whether it's Vision Zero, literally saving lives relative to um, street design, design speed, traffic, uh, 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 um, speed limits, um, um, bigger vehicles making streets less safe at the same time as we're trying to make streets more walkable. You know, so we've got incredible tensions that are playing out as we're trying to make streets and cities better. Our vehicles are literally getting worse. Um, And I don't mean electric versus um, internal combustion. I mean bigger and deadlier and killing more people. That's just the facts. Um, and so, and we'll talk about complete streets. We'll talk about multimodal. We'll talk about, um, uh, and I think uh, a conversation about uh, some of these big uh, urban projects where where our cities are faced with in Ontario and Canada, ranging from you know making our our main streets more livable for people to reconsidering things like the Gardner. Uh, the East Gardner and uh, other big examples like that in Vancouver here, it's the tearing down of the original uh, viaducts that, that predated the, the urban highways that, that we thankfully never built. So there's, I think there's a lot of case studies we can talk about, but I'd like to keep it out of the weeds of the details and talk about it more as a kind of a call to action and a turning point in terms of how our municipal leaders uh, need to think differently about the cities we're creating and and thus the 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 streets or roads were were still allowing to happen. Terrific! That's a, a lot of great information. Um, and I guess uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there. But um, before I wrap it up, I just want to let everybody know that even though we've been spending a lot of time discussing the conference, Guelph Road School registration is currently in full swing, ready for May first start, and boasting courses such as Introduction to Plan Reading and Contract Interpretation. Uh, overview of municipal road design and, mu- and the much-renowned TJ Mahoney Road School, which helps set you up for a certified road supervisor designation. Um, and you can check out all of those courses and many more at goodroads.ca slash education. And um, uh, Brent, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it, it was fantastic to uh, to hear you discuss roads and streets and the differentiation between that and possibly a good roads name change in the future. Um, <laughs> now I'm going to, now I'm going to want to find out how I was different or the same from, from, from Chuck. Uh, we, well, we, if, we, can, um, we can have that conversation over drinks later. Definitely. Definitely. And, um, be sure to everybody be sure to follow us on Twitter, follow uh, Brent on Twitter as well. Uh, get on there with Thomas. He, he loves to, <laughs> he, he mentions your Twitter feed a lot. 
Um, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn as well, and Instagram for imp- up-to-date information on everything happening at Good Roads. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, give the video a thumbs up and remember to, to subscribe because it's not just the podcast that goes up here. We offer tons of great content to help you run your municipality as efficiently as possible. Also, leave a comment. Give us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, until next time, everybody, take it easy.